Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright Constable and Skeen, um, now uh, located in Towson, Maryland, a, a suburb of Baltimore after our office moved a week ago. Uh, other, our other offices in Bethesda, Maryland, and, and Richmond, Virginia remain the same. As usual, I'd like to start off our episodes with a big thank you to uh, all of our listeners and supporters of Surety Today. Remember, you can listen to any one or all of the prior 88 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere, from any one of our multiple platforms, such as uh, on our website at wcslaw.com, uh, as a podcast on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for Surety Today. And we also have a micro site at uh, suretytoday.net. We, uh, we've had uh, just a little shy of 11,300 downloads of our podcast, so uh, moving onward and upward. As always, we uh, muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we will unmute the line uh, at the end for any questions. Today, I'm going to talk about the Davis-Bacon Act and, and the new regulations that have been enacted that took effect uh, on October 23rd uh, of this year. I wrote a Surety Today blog post on this subject on October 31st, Halloween, uh, because of the potential impact on sureties uh, posed by the new regulations. I thought uh, it would be a good idea to devote this episode of the podcast to the subject. So I will uh, start off today uh, by, by summarizing uh, the Davis-Bacon Act, the history of it, and so forth, and then we'll get into the new regulations, those that specifically impact the surety and, uh, and some others that are sort of indirectly related to the surety or impact the surety. And, uh, and also there has been some construction industry response uh, to these new regulations, so I'll touch on those as well. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, simply summarized, of course, the Davis-Bacon Act requires that laborers and mechanics be paid not less than the prevailing wage uh, as determined by the Secretary of the Labor on all federal construction contracts and federally funded construction contracts over $2,000. The Davis-Bacon Act at 40 U.S.C. Section 3141 at SEC was enacted into law in 1931. The legislative history pinpoints the impetus for the act as the construction of a federal veterans bureau hospital in Long Island, New York, which was located in the con congressional district of Representative Robert Bacon. The federal government hospital contract was awarded to a contractor from Alabama who promptly brought in quote unquote cheap labor from the South to build the project, much to the disappointment of the local labor. Representative Bacon described the practice of quote, certain itinerant irresponsible contractors with itinerant cheap bootleg labor who've been going around throughout the country picking off a contract here and a contract there, unquote. Representative Bacon introduced a total of 13 bills in Congress attempting to establish some form of regulation 
over labor on federal projects. The goal of the legislation was to allow local contractors who presumably would utilize local labor to, to compete on an equal footing by requiring the same prevailing local wages be paid on the project, regardless of whether the awardee of the contract was local or from out of town. The economic conditions of the early 1930s quickly gave rise to an oversupply of labor and increased the importance of federal building programs as unemployment rose and private construction became increasingly limited during the Great Depression. Accordingly, in 1931, a prevailing wage bill submitted by Representative Bacon and Senator James Davis of Pennsylvania was passed by Congress as the Davis-Bacon Act. The act's stated purpose is to protect local wage standards by preventing contractors from basing their bids on wages lower than those prevailing in the area. The act as originally passed did not provide for the predetermination of wages and there were no penalty or enforcement provisions to compel compliance. Accordingly, in 1935, the Davis-Bacon Act was amended to provide for predetermination of prevailing wages and for enforcement penalty provisions. The Davis-Bacon Act was followed by similar legislation um, in manufacturing and service industries. At the present time, there are in excess of 70 federal laws related to the Davis-Bacon prevailing wages. Many states have also enacted little Davis-Bacon prevailing wage legislation as well. However, between 1979 and the present, there have been widespread efforts to repeal prevailing wage statutes, including the Davis-Bacon Act itself. Nine states, uh, as of a while ago, when I last looked at this, have repealed their statutes and legislation has been introduced in Congress for the past several years to repeal or limit the Davis-Bacon Act. Sorry, uh, trying to uh, turn off a printer that just keeps printing. <laughs> Such uh, repeal legislation is broadly supported by the, the U.S. General Accounting Office, the Associated Builders and Contractors, U.S. Chambers of Commerce, and others, most arguing in favor of repeal, uh, cite inflated costs for government projects, ex excess administrative costs to the government and contractors, as well as adverse impact on small and minority firms, unskilled laborers, et cetera. Uh, further, since 1931, a plethora of labor regulatory legislation has been enacted, which has substantially changed the character uh, of the construction industry to the point where it can be argued that um, the Davis-Bacon Act protections are no longer needed. Despite these challenges, the Davis-Bacon Act continues to be applicable to an estimated $217 billion in federally funded assisted construction spending per year and provides minimum wage rates for an estimated 1.2 million U.S. construction workers. The Davis-Bacon Act itself is fairly short and, and not overly complicated. Initially, the act establishes that it applies to every contract over $2,000 for construction, as I mentioned, for construction, alteration, or repair of public buildings and public works to which the federal government is a party or for which federal funding is provided. Pursuant to the act, all applicable contracts must have a provision stating the minimum wages to be paid. The minimum wages are to be established by the Secretary of Labor based on the determination of the prevailing wages for the classes of labor employed on projects of a similar character in a similar location in, the in which the work is to be performed. The statute further provides that every applicable contract 
must have a provision requiring payment of laborers and mechanics at least once a week at the wage rate stated in the specifications and that the contractor will post the scale of wages in a prominent place at the work site. If a contractor fails to pay the established minimum wages, the statute authorizes the contracting officer to withhold contract funds from the contractor in an amount considered necessary to pay to laborers and mechanics the difference between the prevailing wage rates and the wages actually paid to the laborers and mechanics. In addition to the authority to withhold contract funds, the Act also provides for termination of the contractor if the contracting officer finds that um, any laborer or mechanic employed by the contractor has been paid at rates below the determined prevailing wage rate. If the contractor is terminated, the Act states that the government may have the work completed by contract or otherwise, and the contractor and the contractor surety shall be liable to the government for any excess costs. Congress also provided that the Comptroller General shall pay directly to the laborers and mechanics any accrued payments withheld under the contract, which are found to be due under the Davis-Bacon Act. If the funds withheld by the government are not sufficient to satisfy the amounts found to be due, uh, the laborers or mechanics under the Act, such persons have the same right to bring a civil action and intervene against the contractor and the contractor sureties as is conferred by law on the person for furnishing labor or materials. Finally, the Davis-Bacon Act provides that the comptroller shall maintain and distribute uh, a list of persons found to have violated the act and that the government can, can no longer enter into contracts with such individuals who are on the list. Uh, so far from the original Davis-Bacon Act with no enforcement provisions, uh, the current uh, act has uh, plenty of enforcement devices and uh, ways to punish violators. Uh, to implement the requirements of the Davis-Bacon Act, the Secretary of Labor has been given the exclusive authority to prescribe regulations. The Secretary of Labor has issued regulations designed to assure coordination of administration and consistency of enforcement of the Davis-Bacon Act and the other 70 related acts. Those regulations are set forth in Title 29 of the Code of Federal Regulations, the CFR, Subtitle A, Parts 1 through 7. Part 1 provides procedures for predetermining the prevailing wage rate. Part 3 requires submission of the weekly payroll data by contractors. Part 5 provides guidelines for application and enforcement of the Act. And Part 7 contains procedures governing the practice before the Department of Labor's Wage Appeals Board. Uh, under the, the framework established, the contracting agency has the initial responsibility to determine if the Davis-Bacon Act applies to the project, and if so, to determine the appropriate prevailing wage rate uh, by either referring to an existing general area wage determination from the Department of Labor or by requesting a project-specific wage determination. Prior to the new regulations that we'll discuss in a moment, the term prevailing wage was defined as the wage paid to the majority, more than 50% of the laborers or mechanics in the classification on similar projects in the area during the period in question. Any interested person uh, may seek reconsideration of a wage determination or a decision of the administrator regarding the application of a wage determination. If the person is not satisfied with the response of the administrator, uh, then they can appeal to a review board. However, the substantive correctness of the administrator's wage rate determination is not subject to judicial review. Some courts have taken the view that limited judicial review may be had with respect to 
issues such as denial of due process or legality of procedures employed by the Department of Labor. Once the prevailing wage has been established for a project, the contractor is required to submit weekly payroll statements containing information regarding the wages paid to its employees. We know these as certified payrolls. The contract is also required to retain and maintain its payroll records for a period of three years. Contracting agency or the Department of Labor may inspect such records and interview employees to ensure compliance with the act. Failure to maintain and submit the documentation for inspection and review uh, can be grounds for suspension uh, of further payments on the project and may be grounds for debarment. Um, so let's look at the new regulations. On March 18th of 2022, the, the Department of Labor published a notice of proposed rulemaking to update the Davis-Bacon and related acts. That's at uh, 87 Federal Register uh, 15698. The proposed rule offered more than 50 significant changes to existing Davis-Bacon Act regulations regarding how the DAW determines mandates and enforces uh, prevailing wages on all covered contracts. I, I, as you go forward, I, I may periodically refer to the Department of Labor as the DAW, D-O-L, or maybe the department, or you know, maybe even a curse word here and there. But, the DAW stated that the new regulations were intended to update and modernize uh, the DBA. I, I may refer to the Davis-Bacon Act as the DBA or the Act. Uh, the last comprehensive revision of the regulations was in 1981. There were no, I was still in high school back then. There were nearly 41,000 comments uh, in response to the proposed rules. Uh, nevertheless, the, uh, the new final regulations were published on, on August 23rd of this year, uh, 88 Federal Register 57526 uh, at SEC. Generally, um, the new regulations apply only to new contracts that are entered into after the final rule effective date of October 23rd. In general, the, the new rules change the definition of prevailing wage from the longstanding 50% standard to any single wage that is paid to at least 30% of the covered workers. The rule also changes the DAW's approach to calculating prevailing wages in urban and rural counties uh, when survey data is sparse, uh, too sparse to calculate the prevailing wage in a single county. Uh, so you've, <laughs> you can't mix urban wages with, with rural wages. I mean, that's just crazy. All that's going to do is increase uh, the wages in the rural area. The rule further allows incorporation of state prevailing wage determinations into the DBA wage determinations. The rule expands the regulations to cover certain workers and activities previously exempt from the Davis-Bacon Act. For example, the rule now alters the statutory definition of the term construction by including certain forms of transportation between related work sites. Um, the rule also applies the act to new classes of workers, including certain surveyors, truckers, workers engaged in prefabrication, prefabrication activities and or material suppliers away from the construction work site, as well as the certain green energy construction projects, such as weatherization, installation of solar panels, and broadband uh, internet, that kind of stuff. The rule also purports to, the new rules also import to, uh, purport to impose Davis-Bacon Act coverage on contracts in which no Davis-Bacon Act stipulations are included. So under the rule, the new rules, the contract no longer has to state 
that it includes a prevailing wage or any other Davis-Bacon Act requirement, notwithstanding the plain language of the Act requiring such contractual stipulations. Instead, those requirements will now be imposed as a matter of law by operation of law without notice to contractors and or subcontractors that they even apply. So I'll talk about that in a minute. So let's look uh, specifically at some of these new regulations that relate to the surety. There are several provisions in the regs that directly identify sureties and surety rights. There are other aspects of the new rules that indirectly affect surety and surety rights. First, the, the, new, rule, the new rules define the term contractor, which is used throughout the regulations. The, the Davis-Bacon Act itself does not define contractor. The new definition at 29 CFR 5.2 is very broad and states as follows, quote, any individual or legal entity that enters into or is awarded a contract, including any prime contract or subcontract of any tier under a covered prime contract. In addition, and this is the relevant part for, for us, the new definition of contractor also states that it includes, quote, any surety that is completing performance for a defaulted contractor pursuant to a performance bond. So let's just restate that. You're a contractor. A surety is a contractor if it is completing performance for a defaulted contractor pursuant to a performance bond. So for the first time, the surety is now defined uh, as a contractor under the Davis-Bacon Act. The impact of this new definition could be very far-reaching for a surety. Typically, a surety that is taking over a project will include in its takeover agreement, you know, wording to the effect that the surety is not a contractor. I, I know that's in my takeover agreements. Moreover, sureties are actually and physically not contractors, right? By definition of the word, they, they do not perform work. They are not licensed to be contractors. So simply by waving the magic rulemaking wand, uh, the, the DOL is, has now made sureties into contractors. So by including a performing surety in the definition of contractor, the surety may now be bound to adhere to all of the regulations that refer to the term contractor in the, in the DBA and its regs. This new definition may now require performing surety to comply with all the record keeping and the reporting and the compliance and the withholding and the enforcement provisions of the DBA. It may also expose the surety to debarment, liquidated damages, false claims act, et cetera, under the DBA. As I noted in my blog post, this is a real potential disaster and may rightly cause sureties to simply uh, avoid the takeover option on, on DBA applicable contracts. However, you know, the, the question becomes, what do the words completing performance as used in these regulations mean? Might that include a surety that tenders a completion contractor? Or is it limited to just takeover situation? Could it include a surety that is financing its principal to complete the bonded project? These are efforts at completing performance. Unfortunately, these regulations are so new that there's, you know, there's just no way to answer the many, many questions that are raised by this, uh, this new definition of contractor. Nevertheless, sureties will need to you know, internally and working with their outside counsel, analyze these issues to figure out just how much exposure there may be and how to address or mitigate that exposure going forward in response to, you know, a default on a DBA contract. A surety that gets hit with it with a DOL enforcement notice will also need to consider whether to contest the fundamental issue of whether the new regulations are even valid and enforceable as a threshold matter 
and we'll talk about what the uh, construction industry is doing in that regard. Um, so another aspect of the new regulations of the DBA potentially uh, limits the performing surety's right of equitable subrogation. The new regulations now provide that the, that the Department of Labor, quote, has priority to funds withheld or to be withheld over claims to those funds by A, a contractor's sureties, including without limitation, performance bond sureties and payment bond sureties. That's at 29 CFR 5.5 A to two little I's. Under current law, of course, if a surety completes a project, it steps into the shoes of the government, it is entitled to collect the contract balance without set off or deduction pursuant to its rights of equitable subrogation. There are numerous cases where the surety's equitable subrogation rights have been given priority over other governmental claims, such as taxes owed to the IRS. However, now under the new regulations, if the, if the doll steps in and withholds some or all of the remaining contract funds because of an alleged DBA violation of the principal or a subcontractor of any tier uh, of a contractor on a bonded project, the DAW will now have priority to the funds over a completed surety. In looking at this issue at the outset, the threshold question that has to be asked is how, how should a Davis-Bacon Act claim be categorized? Is it a, is it a cost I mean, to the government? Is it a cost of completion? Is it simply a, a claim for labor? Is it the government's claim? Is it the laborer's claim? The answers to these questions can impact on the analysis of what priority such a withholding claim should be accorded. Ordinarily, the government's claims are to recover for its own damages or losses or to recover funds that are owed to the government, such as taxes, liquidated damages, back charges, delay damages, et cetera. The Davis-Bacon Act withholding is for wages due laborers and mechanics on a project. It is not the government's money and the money is not owed to the government. While the government is entitled to collect the back wages, it ultimately must be paid to the laborer or mechanic. Should those so the fact that the government is designated as the vehicle through which enforcement is handled be the determinative factor as to the nature of the claim. The government itself has no direct legal liability to the labor or mechanic. The question is, uh, you know, fundamentally, if, if the government needed 100000 to complete a project and it was holding that money in the contract funds, but the Department of Labor asked it to withhold 100000 for unpaid wages, would the government be required to leave its project unfinished so that it could divert the contract funds to pay the withholding? If the answer is no to that question, then the surety standing in the shoes of the government after completing should not be deprived of the funds. I can't imagine that anyone in the government would agree that it should leave a project unfinished so that it could satisfy the claims of laborers to whom it has no liability. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. But that's sort of the position that, that these new regs are kind of putting the government in in, in elevating this super priority. Moreover, the, the new regulations appear to exceed the terms of the act itself. So, you know, you, you've got this super priority, but, but why? What does the act itself say? The language of the Davis-Bacon Act provides that there may, may be withheld from the contractor so much of accrued payments as the contracting officer considers necessary. The use of the word may indicates discretion with respect to funds uh, to be withheld and whether they be withheld at all. 
Discretion is also given to the contracting officer to withhold such amounts deemed necessary. The discretion is no doubt intended to address the issue of completing the project. Further, the act authorizes withholding funds from the contractor, right, quote unquote, from the contractor that have been accrued. The act does not remove funds from the project for all purposes beyond reach of even the government to complete the project or the subrogated surety. Under well-defined law, upon default of the contractor, the funds under the contract are no longer due to the contractor at all. Rather, such funds are to be used for the completion of the project and thus should not be subject to withholding for Davis-Bacon claims. I, and that's, I mean, just applying applicable law to the wording of the statute gets us uh, around this, this concept of super priority that the Department of Labor is now injected into the rules. I would argue that the default of the contractor on the project changes the circumstances. If you've got a contractor that's performing, not in default, and they fail to pay some, some wages, they misclassified an employee or something like that, and DOL says, well, you, you know, you, you've got this, you've got this uh, back wages to pay, and they don't, and you take some money out of the contract, fine, everything's ongoing, that's not an issue. But in a default situation, it's, def it's different. Uh, the new regulations also refer to funds withheld and, quote, to be withheld, unquote, which seems to broaden the DBA language of due to the contractor from accrued payments, which would only apply to earned and owed funds looking at the present and backwards, not forwards to funds that haven't even been earned yet. So there, there does not appear to be any justification for, for the overreaching in the new regulations. The Secretary of labor has the responsibility to prescribe reasonable regulations for contractors and subcontractors to implement the DBA. However, the Department of Labor, the Department of Labor does not have the authority to make new law, overrule existing laws, or enlarge the language of the statute. I believe that these new regulations go well beyond the concept of reasonableness and exceed the purview of the DAW in implementing new regulations. In the narrative regarding the new rules, the DAW refers to a Board of Contract Appeals opinion, but such tribunals do not have authority to overrule existing Supreme Court law and precedent. Another new regulation uh, involves um, wage violations at any tier and makes them the responsibility of the higher tiers, thus potentially creating exposure to the surety that exceeds the limits of the Miller Act. The new regs at 29 CFR 5.2 defines subcontractor as any contractor that agrees to perform or be responsible for the performance of any part of a contract and includes subcontractors of any tier. Moreover, a person is considered to be employed under the new regulations if they perform the duties of a laborer or mechanic in the construction, prosecution, completion, or repair of a public building or public work or building, regardless of any contractual relationship alleged to exist between the contractor and such person. As we all know, the surety's liability for payment bond claims under the Miller Act is limited to a certain level of contractual relationship. If the claimant does not fit within the scope of the Miller Act, it should have no claim. However, now under the DBA regulations, liability for wage violations at any tier may become the obligation of the surety, whether through the new definition of contractor, the expanded withholding powers, or the coextensive nature of liability between a principal and its surety. To me, it appears that an argument can be made that the DBA, the act itself, has already addressed this issue. The Davis-Bacon Act provides that 
if the funds withheld under the act are insufficient to fully reimburse the laborers and mechanics, then under section three of the act, uh, the laborers uh, have the same right of action or intervention conferred by the Miller Act on laborers and materialmen. And that, that was stated in the uh, case, Supreme Court case of Universities Research Association Inc. versus COTU, C-O-U-T-U, 450 U.S. 754, uh, case out of 1981. The COTU case, uh, the Supreme Court, after reviewing the legislative history of the act, observed that Congress intended to give laborers and mechanics only, quote, the same right of action against the contractor and his sureties in court, which is now conferred by the bond statute. It, um, I, can't, I don't have a page site for that quote. Thus, promulgating regulations that purport to expand a surety's liability beyond the Miller Act would seem to me to be invalid on their face. Uh, and I, I just don't think that the Department of Labor has the authority uh, to, to do it. Um, and, and that's, in fact, what they're doing. Another new definition in the regulations that also presents a potential problem for sureties uh, is the expanded definition of prime contractor. Under the new definition, uh, prime contractor now includes any person or entity that enters into a contract with an agency and includes the controlling shareholders or members of any entity holding a prime contract, the joint venturers or partners in any joint venture or partnership holding a prime contract, and any contractor, e.g. general contractor, that has been delegated responsibility for overseeing all or substantially all. Uh, you know, so that, that, that just makes the definition so broad and, and, and can cover so many uh, other matters and, and, and issues. So look, for the purposes of the DBA, any such related entities holding different prime, contractors, uh, prime contracts are considered to be the same prime contractor. In conjunction with this new definition, the regulations now allow the withholding of contract funds for DBA violations across agencies and for any contracts in which the expanded prime contractor is involved. See 29 CFR 5.5 A to one little I. The cross withholding regulations greatly extends the reach of the doll under the DBA. This creates a real potential risk exposure for sureties the surety underwriting departments are really going to have to analyze and, and figure out. Suppose you, you issue a bond on a federal project to a principal, but unbeknownst to you, the controlling shareholders or members of the principal also have other contracts with the government that you didn't, that you didn't bond or even know about. Under the new regulations, you have indirectly also bonded those Davis-Bacon Act compliance on those other projects as well. The DAW can withhold funds on your bonded contract because of alleged failure to pay on one or more of the other projects. This has the potential to create many issues between uh, the surety and its principal, uh, its affiliated entities, and potentially other sureties that might be bonding those other projects, especially when your principal is no longer in business. Uh, as I mentioned before, the, the new, the new um, rules also apply the DBA to contracts, even if the contracts don't mention the DBA or provide uh, whatever the wage determination is. So on November 7th, uh, last week, I guess it was, the Associated Builders and Contractors Association filed suit in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Texas, case number 1-23-CB-00396, seeking an injunction against enforcement of the new regulations. In addition, on the same date, the Associated General Contractors of America Association also filed suit 
in the uh, United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas, case number 5-23-CV-00272. Summonses have been issued, but nothing uh, has happened so far in the case. Both suits basically attack the, the regulations as being outside of the, uh, of the ability uh, or authority of the Department of Labor. Um, they, they relate to many of the issues relating to definitions of, 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 of uh, what the, uh, the act applies to and the expansion, uh, how prevailing wages is, is uh, defined and those kinds of things. Um, the, the ABC has also argued that the current head of the Department of Labor, the interim head, is not, uh, does not have the authority to issue because she's not been confirmed by the Senate and is not going to be confirmed by the Senate, apparently, according to them. Uh, so she lacks the authority to issue any rules and, and has challenged it on that basis. They've also alleged that all the rules, even though they only um, call out specific rules, but all of the rules should be, um, should be rejected because they're all intertwined and related. And therefore, uh, if you're going to reject some, you got you to gotta reject them all. So that's out there. It's pending. Uh, I don't know what uh, the Surety Fidelity Association is going to do. I know that they're um, aware of the issue and are looking at the issue and considering their options. So uh, the surety industry should probably be weighing in on this uh, any, any time now. Uh, but it's a it's it's quite um, quite amazing these these changes that just seem to come out of nowhere and and nobody really was uh, was sort of uh, aware of this going on and uh, so now it's incumbent on on all of us to try to look at these and figure out how do we as an industry you know deal with them but also how do we deal with them if it comes up you know in a case that you have uh, so fun times ahead for all. Uh, okay, I've gone over time a little bit here, so I've got to do the closing. Um, before I open up the line for any questions, I want to thank everyone for joining me today, of course, and the next episode will be Monday, December 11th at 1230 Eastern Time. Uh, upcoming events, November 15th, the uh, Philadelphia Surety Claims Association will hold its lunch meeting, and um, Mike Saba will be the, uh, the speaker talking about SDI. On December 6th, the, the PS. CA will hold its annual holiday party at Fergie's in Philadelphia, and the holiday gift will be a nice uh, PSCA logo duffel bag, so come and get your holiday gift. Uh, January 24th, 26th of 2024, the ABA FSLC will hold its annual midwinter meeting in New Orleans at the Roosevelt Hotel. Our very own uh, Cindy Rogers Ware, Rich Pledger, and Tom Moran will be attending and presenting. You can go to our... Um, Surety Today blog website at wcslaw.com to see a calendar of surety events. And now I will attempt to unmute the line. Let's see. Conference is now in talk mode. Okay, the line's been unmuted. We're in talk mode. Any questions? I know that in dealing with several of my clients on existing matters, when this came out, uh, I got contacted by by several people in the industry, and uh, and there's a lot of a lot of concern about <laughs> about these new regs. So uh, you can ask questions. I don't know how many answers there'll be because <laughs> it's it's so early. <clears throat> now I would also note that um, there in the past, and I've 
I went back and updated the research last from the last time I did it, and, and there really is not much out there about the Davis-Bacon Act and how it applies to sureties. There's a couple of uh, there's a couple of cases, and um, you know the the ones that are out there generally uh, don't aren't favorable for the surety in terms of the application of uh, the prior existing um, uh, regulations. So, but these new ones, obviously, too early. All right. If we don't have any questions, we'll close out. Thanks again, everyone, and have a good day. Talk to you next month. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.